Well, this week, Tuesday, uh, this room will be rearranged. There's going to be um, several polling stations. We are an election spot, and so I find it always interesting uh, when the whole nation goes to vote. And so this is a national election uh, year. Did you remember Tuesday, voting Tuesday? Some of you probably already sent your vote in. All right, now you're with me, you're alive. And so uh, we come, and we are going to cast our ballot for different tiers of elections. We will vote for a congressman because... You know, that's what every state does every two years. You vote for your House of Representatives. Some states will be voting for their senators. Some states will be voting for governors. All right. Then there's local elections. And here in California, I'm starting to get used to it with all the TV ads. You guys have a lot of what's called propositions that you vote on. Right. And so it's going to take some education for me tomorrow, I'm sure. Anyway, uh, we are uh, a host place for an election. And I find it interesting because, you know, there's different levels, different tiers of participation. Some people are into politics. Some people aren't. And some of you going right now, pastor, don't go anywhere near politics this morning. It's not good. But um, we have this opportunity in this nation to be able to be engaged in the governing process of our world. I'm sure if you went to North Korea, you'd find a bunch of people there right now that go, you know, we would really like to have a vote on who our leader is in North Korea. Right. So we are blessed to be able to do that. But sometimes with the opportunity that we have with being able to elect governing officials, we misplace our hope. How many of you believe that the election results on Saturday, on Tuesday, whoever retains the Congress, those kinds, do you think that's going to fix it all? Do you think the next presidential election is going to fix it all? No. Sometimes we, we get up our hope and our anticipation for different kinds. Like, oh, now's the change. But I want you to be reminded again today that you live in a fallen, broken world because it's made up of fallen, broken, sinful people. And we have a hard time not only governing ourselves, but sometimes just getting along with one another. All right? It's part of the fall of sin. But our hope is that we are not only citizens of the United States, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, who is Jesus Christ the Lord. And as we've been discussing in these weeks, the concept of the end times and no one left behind kind of idea, the reality that I want to pull us into each and every week is that there is something much bigger going on than our little valley, than our portion of a big state, then our nation, then our world. And the bigger thing that's going on is the kingdom of God and what God is doing. And it is His reign that we long for. It is His leadership that we uh, pray and hope for. And that leadership begins in the hearts and the lives of each and every person. And so the most important election on Tuesday is on Tuesday, who will be the Lord and Savior of your life? Who are you going to vote for? You've got some options, you know. You can vote for some famous person. You can vote for um, your spouse. You can vote for yourself. I vote for Jesus Christ. And if you're here just sort of checking the God thing out this morning and you don't know where God's at in your life, 
I want you to seriously consider that maybe, maybe you were created and you were destined to follow the leadership of the one who reigns eternally, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you came in this morning, um, you were given a little handout of the diagram that we're going to look at. But before we look at that diagram, I want to read for you a quote from Leslie Newbigin. Leslie Newbigin was a missionary to southern India. He served there faithfully for many, many years, helping God's church, the reign of Christ, come about in southern India. He retired at the age of 65. He moved back to Great Britain, and he was shocked because he discovered that the world had changed. And he became, in his retirement years, one of the best spokespeople for what's called the missional movement or how we can be on mission, speaking into the life of the Western church. Leslie Newbigin says this, The Bible is unique among the sacred scriptures of the religions in that it offers an interpretation of history as a whole, human history and cosmic history. And not just of the life of man apart from this history, its center of attention is not, if one may put it so, the possibility of man's escaping out of this world into another. It is the promise of God coming into this world to redeem it and to complete what he has begun. I've referenced this before, but many times we fall into the sinful trap or the misguided trap as Christians to think, oh my gosh, I do need somebody to lead me. Save me out of this terrible place. And so we have this escapist kind of mentality that says you begin to follow Jesus Christ and we long for his coming again or when we die, we move into heaven, right? And we want to just get away from this world. But that's not the story that's revealed in the Bible. What's revealed in the Bible is an ongoing history of which God is participating in at different seasons, has different plans and times all to unveil. And he is about redeeming this world that he has created. And thus, the diagram that's before you. The diagram before you depicts from creation to the new heaven and the new earth. During this continuum of time, God is redeeming mankind to be his followers or for it to be the bride of his son, Jesus Christ, Scripture refers to. The bride meaning that Jesus Christ wants a group of people who follow him. And so the bride, the bridegroom thing kind of uh, analogy comes into play at different points in Scripture. And so we have from creation to the new heaven and the new earth. It's about God's redemption of his people including us in this room, those of us in this valley. God is about not the escapist, oh, let's get him out of there. He is about change and restoring that which was broken at the fall when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And not only did mankind fall, but creation, our social structures, everything else, it was inbred with sin at that time. So God's about in this big redemption story. And this story is sort of this underlying story that we've got to continually dial into to fully come alive in Christ because if we're not a part of this story, then I don't know what you're a part of. Maybe living out in sort of, you know, a Wawa land just trying to figure out, you know, some type of make-believe of your own. No, this is the story. The story we're living in is God's redemption. And he chose to send his son into this story. 
And the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ is the pivotal event of the whole story. And then the story moves on into what's called the church age, of which we are a part because we are the bride of Christ, people being called out, the church are called out ones, to be able to rule and reign with Christ into and through eternity. But this church age has an ending. And the church age will end when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back a second time as he promised. And so we've been looking at what's referred to as the end times. But really, from this diagram, guess what? The end times are not the end. The end times are merely one more chapter in the ongoing story of God's redemptive plan into the eons of eternity. And so the end times are really the turning of a page. And the big turning of the page that's coming at the end of this present age is the return of Jesus Christ. And we talked about it last week. You did so good with me last week. And we talked about Jesus Christ coming back to this earth. And he was going to do what? Put boots on the ground. We don't think about it, but Jesus Christ is surely was here the first time and we can read about him in the scriptures and historians even talk about this Jesus from Nazareth that existed. Jesus, the son of God, comes back, not incarnate as a babe in a manger, right? As we just saw the baby up here this morning, but he's, which was an incredible kind of idea. Who would have come up with that one, right? But he's coming back this time in great glory and everybody will know. And he is going to physically rain boots on the ground on this earth for what's referred to as the millennium, a thousand years. And then at that end, there's some other things that are going to happen and transpire, but then the new heavens and the new earth. All right? Now, I trust over the course of these weeks, you've been trying to put together part of this picture. This picture we summed up last week with some of the stages of resurrection with 1 Corinthians 15, the first resurrection of Jesus, the second resurrection when the dead in Christ will rise to meet the Lord. Those of us who are believers in Him, we get to join with Him. We get to reign with Him then. And then there's the final resurrection of, of the dead and the judgment. That there is this continuing story, this epic, and we are a part of it. And so what Leslie Newbigin is saying is that this Bible is about an interpretation of ongoing history. Now, if you are a screenwriter this morning, you know how critical the story is. And the story needs to have some type of suspense to it. The story has main characters, has different events that are happening with it. But if you are in the middle of the story, do you know how it's going to end? No. We're all living our own personal life story, and we're like, where is this going to take me from? We were in Wyoming. Where are we going to end up at? You know, that kind of thing. We were in Indiana. You know, we all are living a story. We're in the middle of it. We can't see what the future is on some pragmatic basis. You cannot know what the end of the story is unless the writer of the story or the author of the book tells you what's going to happen. And that's why we are so blessed with this book. Because this book is filled with prophetic words about what the story is moving towards. And as we understand what the, movies, the movie or the story is moving towards, then we can live life more fully today. So you must have this context. Jesus 
gave us better context. In Matthew 24 and 25, when he was asked about how's it all going to end, you know, the disciples were gathered there. We've been looking at that. And so this diagram is not a diagram just to store away and go, oh, that was a nice little Bible teaching that Kerry did there for those few weeks in October of 2014. No, this represents the frame around the picture of all that's going on. And you have to have this context in order to live life healthy. You had a bad week, had a bad month, a bad year. Could it be that you've not dialed into where you're at in the story and what's going on? And you're just off here on your own little tangent, creating your own little side episode in life. Don't do that. Connect back into the big story. Then when you go to Scripture, Scripture starts to come alive in some ways that you've never thought before. And I want to give an example of this. If you were to read in 1 Peter 1, 3, Peter starts out and he says this. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Exclamation point. Peter's excited. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith has who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I'm going to ask you, you don't have to say yes or no, because it'll make me feel bad if you say no. But the context of the present age and the age to come, the overlap, what we've been talking about for these weeks, does that picture frame help you identify more with what Peter's trying to speak to us from the word? I would say yes. I would say yes, because he's saying into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, yeah, the resurrection of Jesus, the living hope we have for what's coming and into an inheritance that's it's never going to perish, spoil or fade. All right. And we who through faith are shielded by God until the coming of the salvation. What the coming of the Lord again and what happens? So place yourself in the context of the big picture whenever you're reading God's word. In fact, if you were to go on and listen to what he was saying in first Peter, you would find him articulating um, other thoughts as it relates to this. He says in this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. And may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation... He's painting the picture back over the years. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel, the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And I love this last tag part of verse 12. Even angels long to look into these things. They don't really 
know the full story either. The angels long to look into these things. What's it going to mean? We remember when we went and announced to the shepherds the entrance of Jesus the first time. What will it mean when he comes the second time? What will the new heaven and new earth be? The angels exist to support the glories and the wonders and the purposes of God Almighty. But they are created beings just like you and I are created beings. The scripture in some places reveal that we will be even above the angels because we are redeemed humanity and we will rule and reign. We will be co-heirs with Christ. The book of Revelation says to him who overcomes, I will grant the right to sit with me. There's some incredible, magnificent indescribable episodes coming in the future. Don't miss out. And for this day and age that you live with the sufferings and trials, put it into context. Not an escapist mentality of like, oh, someday Jesus is going to get me out of this mess. No, participate with what he's doing in the changing of lives here. We talked about Jesus' spiritual reign is evident today. There will come a day when the physical rain, boots on the ground, happen. And we are to be a part of that. But only those, as we looked at last week, whose names are written down in the book of life, reference the names of people who have chosen to let Jesus Christ, who have elected Jesus Christ to be their leader and their Lord, get to participate in all of that. Leslie Newbigin says this about the church age I think this is key. He says the church is the sign, instrument, and foretaste of God's reign. You catch those three words? The church, meaning those who are believers and followers of Jesus Christ. We are the sign. We are evidence that Jesus Christ is redeeming the world. Because we've been changed internally. And we have a destiny before us. We are the instrument of God's reign. It's through us that we pull other people in to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So we are the instrument of God's reign. And then we are the foretaste. Rich community. You know when you're really knocking it down with one another, everybody's getting along well, family times, friend times, just a rich community. You have things in common, foremostly maybe your love for God. Think about that. That's a foretaste of the community that's come when he wipes away every tear from every eye and he makes all things right. And there will be no wars anymore. The church, the body of the awakening, us, we are the sign and the instrument and the foretaste of God's reign. Which means that we are being called out to action. Let's return now to Matthew 24. I'm going to make some headway in Matthew 24 today. I promise. In Matthew 24, it talked about the wars, rumors of wars to come. And then in Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom, of his reign, the beauty of all that he's doing and his lordship, will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And Angie here today, who said, hey, it's a CMA church, the Christian Missionary Alliance, CMA, the alliance was founded by A.B. Simpson, and this was one of his strong verses of conviction that mobilized him into action and the whole Alliance Church movement. Because he felt when the gospel, the good news, got to every ethos, ethnicity group, then the end would come. 
He believed in the imminent return of Christ, but he also knew we were to be involved in action. So you go from Matthew 24:14. Let's look at Matthew 24, verse 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. This is Jesus talking. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from uh, one end of the heavens to the other. So this climactic event of changing from the present age to the age to come, the Son of Man comes. He gathers those who are followers who voted for him to be the leader. And he says, come on, let's go. We're going to go into a perfect government, all right, where peace will reign forevermore. And so he gathers them in. So Jesus is teaching in Math 24 to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, because they ask him, when's all this going to happen? What's going to take you know, place and sign of the coming of age? He's basically telling them, calm, there's going to be a lot of wars, pestilence and famines, those kinds of things going on. But then the end's going to come, and the end's going to come once the gospel's preached to all the world. And when that end comes, there will be this glorious appearing of the Son of Man in heaven. And things begin to move forward from there. And so we step into verse 36 of Matthew. About that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in the heaven. <laughs> the angels are looking into this, right? They're saying, well, we don't know. We don't need that. You know, I don't know. What's going on? Nor the Son, but only the Father. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day of Noah, when he entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Thus, the movie series and the book series left behind. No one left behind. Now, we talked in this verse as the people left behind were the ones saved or the people left behind were the ones that died, right? Different ways to look at this. But the acknowledgement of this left behind aspect is that there's a separation. There's a separation of someone who continue on into this beautiful epic kingdom story and others who will be cast away and have no hope. And so this is the context uh, which Jesus then is now narrowing down to transition them in to a very, um, what can I say, a very... Uh, he uses stories to be able to be nice, but there's this heavy-handed way of just exhorting his followers into action. You know, the story is told of um, A.J. Gordon. A.J. Gordon was a famous Baptist evangelist preacher, and A.J. Gordon was a contemporary, actually, of uh, A.B. Simpson. And uh, they would talk, and they were pretty well aligned on the studies of end times, that kind of thing. But this was back in, in the early areas, 1800s and early 1900s, when you didn't have, like, vehicles moving around. And so A.J. Gordon, he would travel and preach a lot in some different places, and he had some little girls. And uh, he would let his family know, somehow through written means or when he took off before he left, that he was going to come back into town on a certain week. And mom wanted the girls to meet dad at the train station when he came in. But guess what? There was only one train a day, and nobody knew when the train was going to come in, and nobody knew who was going to be on the train or not. But what she did with her little girls is she had them get all dressed up 
And on Monday, they would go to the train station and they would stand on those wooden planks and wait. And finally, here would come the train. The train would come and they were waiting for their dad to get off. And their dad wouldn't be there. And so the next day, what'd they do? They got dressed up again in their best Sunday best. And they went back and they stood on the train tracks to wait for their dad to come home. And they would wait all the way until Friday. Their dad said that he was coming back. He was coming back that week on the train. They wanted to be there. And they wanted to be watching and ready and expectant. And that is exactly what they did. And they went there, cleaned up, dressed up, good to go. Their dad would come home. He'd walk off that train. And his girls were ready to embrace him and hug him. It's a good picture of what we need to be as the bride of Christ. We need to be watching and waiting and ready. We don't know when He will come. The word's called imminent. Imminent means at any moment. At any moment, the Lord Jesus could come back. And so we're watching and waiting. But we're just not watching and waiting. We're, we're cleaned up. We need to have a sense of Holiness to us. And holiness is a big word, but holiness just means done upright, perfect. I mean, if you're an artist or maybe you're a cook or you like to create other things and sometimes you create it, maybe you're a builder and you step back and you go, wow, that's, that's right, man. We got it right. That's looking great. It's perfect. Right? Holiness has to do with perfection of all the world and perfection of our own hearts. Now, things is we can't be holy in and of ourselves unless Jesus Christ, the Holy One, lives within us. But we are exhorted to be watching and waiting with holiness. I want to take you right back to that Peter passage I just shared with you, where he put it in the context of the big picture in the story. Listen to these words that Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 13 and 16. It says this, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober... Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. So we don't just sit around and twiddle our thumbs and wait for Jesus. Why? Well, yeah, you can come back today. I don't know. You can go to the train station. I don't really care. All right, I'll go to the train station. Yeah, I'm going to throw something on here. No. To be watching and waiting means to be expecting He could come and He could come on the train today. And I'm going to be garbed in His righteousness and His holiness I'm not going to be slip-shot shot and, and messing around here and there and involved in this. I, I know better than those things. I want to live a holy life, His holiness living through me, so that when He comes, I will be faithful not only to the Word, but most importantly, faithful to the One who redeemed me and has called me to reign with Him. So as we begin to make this turn in Matthew 24, Jesus has some strong words And these strong words that we would keep watch. Matthew 24, verse 42. Go there, sorry. Therefore, keep watch that you do not know the day your Lord will come. 
But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time the thief would come, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour that you expect not. He then takes this verse, this idea of keeping watch and being ready. He moves into this concept, as we mentioned there with the the A.J. Gordon girls on the train, um, waiting for the train. And he goes into three parables. And his three parables are found in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, the latter part of 24. It's the parable of the household servant and master, the parable of the ten virgins and bridegroom, the parable of the talents and the servants. Let's take on that first one and see what God would exhort us to today as we think about how to serve and wait on him. Matthew 24. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. And then it goes on following that verse 48 of Matthew 24. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. That parable, the parable of the household servant, is pretty straightforward. There is a master who owns a lot, and he has servants. He has responsibilities. He says, I'm taking off, but I'm coming back. The faithful servant is the one who is mindful of all that needs to be done and is diligent, as Scripture says. It says that the uh, servant is to give them the food at the proper time. And then he turns around and he says... In Matthew 24, 45, if we have that maybe on the slide, he says, truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. All right. Jesus is speaking this on the heels of talking about the end times, the kingdom of God. I believe, I don't know if you believe, but I believe it's true Jesus boots on the ground. Those who are followers in him, who elected him as Lord and Savior and leader, right? Not that it matters if you elect him or not. He is, whether or not you're following him, right? But he then is going to put those who are faithful, expecting, watching and ready in charge of his possessions. I think I mentioned it last week. If you like to power up and make things happen, then you're in good stead for the future. You're not sitting around on a cloud playing a harp or a banjo. You are involved in the government and the building of God's universe through the eons of time. I can't get my hands even close to understanding one small concept of that when I see how small and sinful and how I bumble my way through life. But this is God's beautiful plan. And embedded in this parable about those who are faithful... Here, you will be encouraged to be placed in charge of possessions in the future. Some of you are in no-end jobs right now, but you're doing it to build your resume. You're waiting for the big payday somewhere, right? 
Can I encourage you about something, kingdom of God? Your payday is not going to happen in this world when it comes to your spiritual life. It's in the next realm. He's looking to see how faithful you are involved. Maybe in the smallest menial tax of just being faithful to raising that toddler. Maybe it's just being faithful and reaching out to that, that single mother down the road who, who is a little bit of an EGR, extra grace required person. But God keeps tugging at your heart to go help them. It may be those small texts, but God's saying, you are faithful and you're responsible, and He is then going to commission you to much greater things. Yes, in the life to come, maybe even in this life, but you may never get due recognition in this life for how you lead your life in expectation with holiness before Him. But Jesus is saying, the Master went away, He's coming back. And He flips it with the wicked servant, right? And the wicked servant says what? Yeah, I got it. Good. Master's gone. Days turn into weeks. Weeks turn into months. Months turn into years. Years turn into decades. And what's the wicked servant do? The wicked servant just says, forget this. He starts hammering on the employees. He starts cutting them their wage, cutting and cheating on their wages. He's just a bully to be around. He's partying it up with himself. And, and, and it's like, hey, I think he forgot or he died. And then the master comes back. And what does it say in verse 48, 49, and 50 there? The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. He will cut him to pieces. This is harsh. And assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Do you ever read the Word of God sometimes and get a little scared by it? You should. I believe on the final day, whether we pass from this life or the Lord returns and we will see things for what they really are, we will say to ourselves, oh my goodness. Jesus left his teachings. It was right there. He put it in a parable and a story. Why didn't I right-size my life and not just straighten up, but live in to the inheritance and the hope that we have? I want to look at a phrase in this. The phrase I want to look at is in Matthew 24. I'm going to pass over a section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 4 if you want to look at it that applies to how this is lived out with the Apostle Paul. But Matthew 24, if we go back to um, verse, um, verse 45 in there, it says this, to give them their food at the proper time. Why does it mention food here? That's a good question. There's all so many other things could be mentioned. But he's exhorting the faithful servants in the household. And it was known at that time that the household was the household of the church or the followers of Jesus Christ. And the servants were the leaders. And the leaders were to provide food for the household. I believe this uh, very well may be a direct reference that we need to provide food, spiritually speaking, the Word of God to the body, to the household. So as we're watching and waiting, he's saying the faithful servant is the one who takes the food from the Word of God. All right? 
Scripture talks about Jesus Christ being you know, the bread of life. This word is alive and well. And it's not the, the letters on the word or the paragraphs or, or the book or the paper. All right, I'm not into bibliodolatry. But this book points to God. This book points to Jesus. And he's saying, if you want to be a faithful servant until I come back again, then you need to take responsibility to take this word and teach the word. Encourage the word and other people exhort one another with the word. Because you are not just to be sitting around on the planks of the train station just watching, even in holiness, in a passive state. Passivity drives me nuts. And if it drives me nuts, I can't comprehend how it drives God himself nuts who created the world. But Christians, we a lot of times get ourselves in a spirit of passivity, especially when we're so excited about the end times and Jesus is coming. I'll just sit around and wait for it. No. Passivity grates on him. And we need to be in action. And one of the ways we need to be in action is by taking the word of God. And I framed it up this way. Keep watch and be ready by building up and exhorting one another to believe and obey the word of God. What are you to do, Jesus says, as you wait for his soon return, which it's going to happen. It's going to happen, he says. He says you need to be watching as in the days of Noah, people just marrying, giving them marriage and just going the long way they weren't thinking. And then it came. The master is going to return. And when the master returns, it's not that you need to be up front and preaching with people, doing your own Bible study, but will you have a lifestyle that's reflective of being in the book that reveals truth? Or will you just be running on fumes like a lot of us do? I'm one of those people who try to get the gas to go all the way down to the last drop, and my wife hates it. Let's go get gas. I think I'm good. I can get to a cheaper station. Friends, we can't lead our spiritual lives that way. We need to be filled up, fueled up with the Scripture. Not in a Bible-thumping kind of way, but the Word comes alive to us as we begin to devote ourselves to the Word of God. The Word of God is truth. It is the unveiling of, real, unveiling of reality. It is the revelation of the things that really are and what's to come. We are to be engaged. And this book will give us a biblical worldview. When they ask me, how should you vote? Well, it doesn't matter. Democrat, Republican, Independent, or I don't know what else you have. There's all kinds of others, right? I usually look for individuals. I know it's hard to know individuals, but sometimes you can know the drifts and directions of things. I want people who have a biblical worldview. They don't need to necessarily be Christians. They, they just need to have a biblical worldview of there is fallenness and there is a need for hope and it's outside of ourselves. and It's outside of just having more money, whatever it may be, that we would know the truth the truth being Christ, and it would set us free. We need a biblical worldview, not a secular worldview. And the only way to get that is to be in his word. And as we're in his word, I think it brings a smile on his face. And he says, then take care of some more of my possessions. Take care of some more of my dimensions and my responsibilities and opportunities.
So keep watch and be ready by building up and exhorting one another to believe and obey the word of God. Now, if you've been around church for a long time, you know you're supposed to be reading the word, meditating on the word, right? Studying the word. Men's group, don't want to scare any more of you off, but, you know, we're doing okay on Saturday mornings, but I brought from Scripture memorization in on Saturday mornings. Memorize the Word, all right? And uh, you can come without having your stuff memorized, all right? But we're just sharpening one another to memorize the Word of God, all right? If you grew up in a church around about, you know, well, that's the Word of God. But I think sometimes we have failed, especially if you're long-term Christians, to realize what this book does for us. We start to take it for granted. I came across some thoughts from a pastor. Uh, some of you may have known who he was. His name is Ray Stedman. And he talks about the word of God this way. And he says, and he lists seven things. I've sort of rephrased them some. But he says seven things from Scripture that the word of God does for us. That if we didn't have the word of God, then we would not have this. So here we go. Number one. The word of God reveals Jesus Christ and thus strengthens and refreshes the human spirit. If we did not have this word, we would not have that. Secondly, the word of God increases true understanding and thus personal knowledge and guidance. In scriptures, is like a mirror. We look in the mirror and say, hey, am I looking all right? It brings knowledge to us. Yes, there's psychiatry and psych, uh, psychology and all, all that goes on. But, you know, the base of it, the true base of that which is true is in the Word of God. And this Word of God increases our self-understanding and thus our personal knowledge and understanding for guidance. Third, the Word of God leads to the exercise of true power and impact by revealing Christ in you. What it does is the Word of God reveals Jesus Christ, our contact with God, and then it shows us who we are and our need. And then it brings those two together and it gives us hope. And it gives us power. Because the ultimate answer is not us trying to do better. It's us having God within us living through us. And so the Word of God, we would not know that that's the key. Christ in you, the hope of glory, if it was not for the Word teaching us that. Number four, the Word of God helps explain the cause and cure of family, social, cultural, and world problems. You go, really? Yeah. All creation groans as in the pains of childbirth. Just like we do. There's a fallenness fabric. There's other issues that that represent why there's problems and turmoil. And the Word of God helps explain this and point to the cure. Number five, the Word of God gives specific answers to varied and numerous questions on life and death. Where are you going to go? To the children's section of your local bookstore? The Word of God teaches us. Number six, the Word of God reveals the origins of the past life and the destiny of the future times. That's why we talk and have some substance to talk about concerning the end times. Why? Because the book teaches us. You should, shouldn't care. You forget if there's some human being up here trying to explain it to you. And then number seven, the word of God protects from unknown dangers in the unseen spiritual realm. Remember what Jesus did when he was tempted by Satan? He said what? It is written. He's going back to truth. This word protects us from the spiritual warfare that's hounded in our life. Whole nother subject. Not going there today. 
But I tell you what, I've been around enough spiritual warfare fighting and prayer sessions and seeing people freed that the power of the Word of God, it's shocking. The dark side hates the truth that's found in this book. In fact, sometimes I encourage people that if they feel they're under attack, the adversary, just open your Bible, turn it to Ephesians 6, where it talks about putting on the full armor of God to take your stand against the devil's schemes and just leave that Bible open right there when you fall asleep and remind any spiritual forces that are seeking to wreak havoc in your life that there's truth that you are girded with. You get that? Think of all the people in the world that don't have the Word of God. Why we need to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth so we can come. We need to get truth to them. And we need to be faithful stewards of the household by feeding them. Feeding them. And it may be simple things you're teaching your kids. Maybe just reminding your husband or your wife when they're in a dark place to have truth. The Word of God's critical. So why we wait for the one who's coming, let us not neglect the book. If we do, then these are things that are going to be true if you strike through the Word of God. When there is no Word of God, the inner spirit withers with no transcendent God contact. When there's no Word of God, we are constricted with our self-understanding and discernment. There is no indwelling power for which to live life as intended. The world conditions and events baffle and depress us. We are troubled by a lack of real answers and death is often feared and frightening to us. And there's widespread delusions about the past and the future when there's no word of God. And the word of God, if there is no word of God, exposes us to the powers of darkness that eventually come and start to take control of our life. Friends, that list right there, which goes with the other list of seven, is enough that all of us should be heading out and thinking through how we can incorporate more of the word of God in our life this week. I close with this story. The Christian Missionary Alliance leader in Lebanon, in the Middle East, his name is Sammy Dagger. And I remember this story that uh, Ravi Zacharias tells, who's an international evangelist, when he went to visit Sammy Dagger and Sammy took him around. The Middle East, hotbed, right? Sammy is ministering, leading some movements as it relates to reaching to um, the Lebanese and the Palestinians. They were in a van. And as Ravi put it, the van was powered more by prayer than it was mechanically. And they were winding their way on dusty roads and they were headed into a difficult area where a very anti-Christian, anti-God kind of thing. And, and uh, they were trying to hold themselves together. The bumper sticker on the back of this van said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So that's what they're driving around. And up ahead, they see some soldiers, and these soldiers motion for them to pull over. So they pull over, and Sammy Dagger, he's a lively kind of character. He rolls his window down, and the soldier walks up to him, sticks his gun on the window's ledge, looks at him with steely eyes. You have any explosives in here? Robbie's sitting next. He says, oh, no, this is not going to be good. He says, what's going to happen? Let's just answer him. Let's get on. Let's get on. I don't need to be put in jail or anything. And Sammy Dagger puts a smile on his face. And he says, the whole van is full of explosives. <laughs> oh. <laughs> About that time, the soldiers started looking around. And 
And Sammy tags on a canvas up top and he pulls out a New Testament. And he says, here's the dynamite. But it's the kind that doesn't hurt. Somehow they were scurried on their way. Just one of many stories about a man who is chosen to watch and be ready by forwarding the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Day in and day out, you hear all kinds of stories about those who are in places, hotbeds of difficulty, forwarding the mission of Jesus Christ. And they're forwarding it by taking the word of God, the dynamite that doesn't hurt, but heals and brings hope. The least we can do as we watch and wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to come back is to exhort and encourage one another to know and be obedient to the word. We have a beautiful Savior. He's given us a beautiful hope and inheritance. And he's given us a beautiful opportunity this week to make a difference in people's lives. May we take the word of God and apply it appropriately to those he's laying on our hearts. And if you need to put Jesus Christ as the Lord and leader of your life, then I invite you to do that just through simple prayer and devotion, committing your life to him. There's a prayer area over here, and if you want to be prayed for, for any particular need, after service or while we have the closing song, feel free to do so, even if you want to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. Worship team, come and prepare to lead us in a song of worship. The ushers are going to come to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings as well as your connection cards. May we worship the Savior in the beauty of His holiness for who He is. There's coming a day we will see Him face to face with our worship. For today, He's here through His Spirit. May we be mindful of His presence and be obedient to all that He's calling us to even as we conclude our time together this morning.